HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today, my guest is Brian Dayton, who's the co-owner of Oak at 14th in Boulder and Acorn and Brighter in Denver, Colorado. Brian oversees day-to-day operations of all three properties. He's a master sommelier. He graduated from the Beverage Alcohol Resource Program. And early two th- in, in 2018, along with his partner, they will open Corita, a Basque Spanish-inspired steakhouse. He previously worked at Frasca Food and Wine in Colorado. Brian's restaurants and cocktails have been covered by countless publications, including Bon Appetit, Details, Vanity Fair, Imbibe, GQ. They have had a great run so far in Colorado. Today, we're going to be talking about Colorado cuisine. What is it? What does it consist of? What do the restaurants serve? Uh, How Brian manages running multiple restaurants and juggling everything that comes along with that. And also, we're going to talk about normal running, like the type that you do with your feet, uh, because, well, Brian is pretty damn good at that as well. Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So here on the line, I really like to start at the beginning. So we kind of usually jump back way to early childhood. I'm going to throw something out there. Raphael's Italian Restaurant in Tullahoma, Tennessee. Uh, what is that place? Uh, <laughs> were you born in Tennessee? Tell me about, was that your first cooking job? How did, you, how did you end up starting there? Yeah, yeah. I was 15. That was my first restaurant job. I was a basically a dishwasher there and there's a small homemade Italian restaurant in small Tullahoma, Tennessee, which is selling about 14 to 16,000 people depending on the year. So super small, but that's my hometown. And that was my first 
restaurant job. Got in there. Was, I remember scrubbing the lasagna plates, being back in the dish pit day after day, and going through it. It was amazing, amazing opportunity. It was fun. Now, it's a sort of a traditional characteristic of a lot of restaurant people that their first job was you know, scrubbing dishes in the dish pit. But when you're 15, there are more options usually than working at a restaurant. You know, there's, who knows, you could be a lifeguard at the pool, you could work at a radio shack, whatever it might be. How did you end up settling on on a restaurant gig? My dad is a contractor, so he had me landscaping and doing a lot of yard work. And I learned early on that that wasn't where I wanted to go. And I wasn't great with banging nails and so going towards the restaurant and my good buddy, Pat Cushman, he was working there and he's like, Hey, I can get you a job here. And that's kind of how it started. It was definitely, um, and I couldn't swim very well. So the lifeguard deal was out. <laughs> so being a, a young guy in, in Tennessee, uh, for people that have never visited Tennessee, they're not really familiar. Uh, what was your life like growing up in Tennessee in sort of a small town? Like, were you, were you close to a college town or were you pretty rural or? We're pretty rural. The only thing, there was a small community college where, where I grew up. The only thing that was really close to us was Jack Daniels. So I always say we were the wet county, Jack Daniels. Moore County was the, the dry county and still is. And so we, um, you know, not much going on. My my grandfather and grandmother owned a 100-acre farm. We spent a lot of time on growing up. And that was kind of where I also got submerged in food, those Sunday afternoon lunches and dinners, going with those 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 amazing family experiences was part of a weekly event. And so I think being really part of that food culture and being part of the South was a lot of fun. Did your grandparents, did they, did they farm on their farm or did they lease out the land to people to farm it? They did. They had, um, their own, they, they had it on, they lease it out now, but they had, they grew alfalfa on it about five or six head of cows, chickens. I remember getting in the chicken coop and pulling out eggs as a small child. It was a lot of fun. And confusing and fun at the same time. It was, it was a pretty fun experience. Was was that the kind of lifestyle that you thought back then, this could be for me, I could stay in, in Tennessee, or were you always a little bit itching to get out of there? Yeah, I'd say the middle school was pretty itchy to get out. You know, I started, you know, thinking about, I was, I, yeah, I was, spent a lot of time in the woods, a lot of time backpacking, a lot of time camping. So I always had like this itch for the mountains and this yearning for the mountains. I started climbing a lot when I was in high school, early high school. And so that continual thing kind of led me to want to go to exotic places. And I definitely remember when I was in middle school thinking I want to travel the world and go through it. And there's been some pretty impactful moments through there that was like, yeah, I want to get out of this small town and, and see what else is out there. So tell us about that first time that you did leave. How old were you? Was it on a vacation? You know, was it like when you decided to to move away when you were 18? How, how did you end up breaking free of the, of the, <laughs> the farm life? That- it's always like, it was, um, yeah, I left basically one week right after high school. I moved actually to a smaller town in southeast Idaho and worked on a small cattle ranch about 90 miles west of Jackson Hole in the Bitterroot Valley there. And long story short, through my family's association with Tennessee Walking Horses, they knew this family out there. I was wanted uh, this wanderlust, wanted to move out west and be close to the mountains. And again, I was uh, climbing a lot, was really into wanting to see and go backpack out in the Rockies and go through it. And so I moved um, moved to, to, to Dubois, Idaho, and worked on this cattle ranch off and on for two and a half years in that it was seasonal work, obviously, through the summertime and the and the fall. And once the fall came, I moved to Colorado, and that was 1990, the end of 91, beginning of 92, and became a ski bum at Mary Jane Winter Park there in um, in Colorado. And that was my, um, my first job in Colorado and working in the cafeteria at Mary Jane, going back to food service. So... So it's so we've definitely established that you're an outdoor guy. You like to climb, and we're obviously talking about rock climbing, right? right. We're talking about scaling, maybe with <laughs> rope, maybe maybe not. Is it free climbing or no? Back then, I it was all with ropes. All yeah, ropes. Yeah. So and, and so, w- what is a Tennessee walking horse? Is that what you said? Yeah. So a Tennessee walking horse is they have a very specific way that they they walk the horses. So it's a very kind of theatrical, almost like a dance like. And so it's a pretty um, kind of cult horse. Uh, a group that go that people are really into. They, is it so. is it you raise them a specific way? Like are they are they bred and trained to walk that way, or is it like a is it a style of? Do you go to tournaments and do walking? Yeah, they do. Okay, they, 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 it's a style, and they have this huge Tennessee walking horse 
festival, I guess you would call it, once a year down in Shelbyville, Tennessee. And so, and then they do it around the world as well. So I wasn't too involved with it. We went to a few of the shows, but my mother's family knew a lot of people that were really into it. So you, you're kind of like a, at this point in your life, you're like a rancher, but also a bit of a <laughs> ski bum. And you're kind of, now you're back in food service a little bit. It's the early, early nineties. Uh, in my personal opinion, going from ski bum to sommelier ends up there's, that's a big jump somewhere. So can you fill in the gaps a little bit? Tell yeah, me like when you're in Colorado, those early years, uh, how do you start transitioning more and more to cocktails and wine? And even you end up in fine dining. Kind of. Yeah. So early on, it was in, like you said, in Colorado and moved back to Idaho and then went back to Tennessee, went back to the university of Tennessee. And that's when, was working kind of again out of the out of the ranch and then started waiting tables in Knoxville as I was going to school and just working all the time in the restaurants again and going to school and, and working all the time and I knew it, this was about age 20 that I wanted to be I wanted to be in the restaurant business I knew I wanted to be a bartender had a fake ID back then was like going to bars I was like I want to be that person behind the bar I want to be doing this just like the excitement of it. And I loved being in the restaurant. And, and at that point I was waiting tables and, and running around and that hustle and that feel of that excitement of that rush was something that was really, I just loved taking care of people and being part of that business. And then as, as, um, finally got to be in 21, 22 moved back out to Colorado at that point and had some friends from when I was a ski bum there in 91 moved um, to Boulder and got my first job at Juanita's Mexican restaurant in Boulder and started off as a, as a, as a bus boy, but I knew I wanted to get behind the bar. And within six months, Tim Luca took me under his wing and he got me behind the bar, started bar backing and started bartending. And it was like off to the races right after that. So there is something still kind of glamorous about being a bartender, right? Like there is, there is a theatrical element to that. You're kind of the you're the star of the show if you want to be, right? You can be loud and exciting or you can be kind of composed or you can make the, the cocktails in sort of a dramatic way. Uh, were you at all thinking about what your style was like or were you just like, let me try to make drinks really fast, you know? Yeah. Where, where was your head at in terms of like, I want to be a bartender. I want to be behind, you know, the I want to be in front of the people behind the bar. How were you kind of formulating what that might look like for you, yeah, I think you think in the back of your mind it is going to be this kind of glamorous thing, and then you're pulling out dirty, you know, bar mats at four in the morning. And it's not that glamorous. So, and <laughs> the lights go up, the and lights everything go up is revealed. And, and nobody's there, and you're yeah, you're drinking your drink by yourself. But it's um, but it you know, I think those ideas do come through. But it was just it's the excitement of it that really brought me into it, and taking care of people and being into it. And that first bartending job at Juanita's was. It was amazing. We were like three deep on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. You know, we would, you know, have 10 hour shifts and just, you know, digging through it. It was, it was a really fun experience and, and to go through it. It taught, taught me how to be really fast. And we, back then that was, you know, 1995, 96, 97, we were still, that's when we, we were still doing fresh juice margaritas. We were stirring our Manhattans back then. I was Tom Sanders was another influence on my life and he was the old school bartender. So he had like taught me how to make a proper old fashioned. So I did have like these little nuances before the cocktail craze got here that gave me a solid foundation from this kind of um, wild experience at Juanita's Mexican restaurant. And so that started my journey into the, to the bardom. Back then was at that restaurant specifically, was Mezcal a thing? Were people drinking Mezcal or is that sort of a more recent development? Because I'm seeing Mezcal really explode everywhere now not even just in restaurants where it would quote unquote make sense but you're seeing it really filtering into a lot of different cocktails almost as like a scotch substitute maybe i don't know you tell me but like uh were you seeing mezcal back then and and why do you think mezcal is sort of becoming what it is now in the last year or so yeah the the monte alban with the the little worm in the bottom of it was about what we had back in the mid nineties. That was the only experience of Mezcal. The Mezcal craze is taken off from like, you know, what Ron Cooper's done with Del McGay over the past few years has been amazing. And then it's just exploded from there. And so it's really a hot market right now. And it is something that's great. Like you said, to substitute, get those smoky notes, things they're going through. And a lot of bartenders are really enjoying it. And we use it, even though we're obviously not, Mexican restaurants, we have a lot of different mezcals at our restaurants to play with. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Frasca 
and and how you ended up there. Can you give a little context um, to the actual restaurant? It's it's obviously it's had an Im- big impact nationally and in the region. But for those that are listening that aren't super familiar with it, can you give a little bit of background and then just sort of how you kind of ended up there? Yeah, I'd love to. So fast forward to. 2000, this would have been 2003 and or 2002. Um, I met, I was actually in Boulder but through like this time I gave up climbing the, the big rocks. I, I became a really crazy trail runner as I kind of became my whole life. And, um, along with bartending and I was in Boulder, I was actually going to take a move with my bartending lifestyle. I could kind of move wherever I wanted. And I was going to move to San Diego for a couple of years. One of my best friends lived there. I'm up at Chautauqua, which is in in, uh, in Boulder there and about to get out for a run. And this guy walks up and he's like, hey, how do you get to the top of Green Mountain? And I start telling him like, hey, you go this way, this way. And it turns out it was Bobby Stuckey. Bobby Stuckey's a master sommelier that opened up Frosca Food and Wine. And so Bobby and I start talking and I was like, hey, I was like, I'll run you out there. Let's go. And so Bobby and I end up running together for almost two hours that day talking. He tells me his whole experience about lifestyle and the restaurants going through it and it was literally his first day in town in Boulder and my last day in town in Boulder. And we kept in contact. I wrote his name down on a on a little piece of scrap paper on my 87 Camry wagon I was driving at the time. And um, and I kept in contact with him, saw him some emails. I went out to California, was, took over as a bar manager, a really great place in North County, San Diego. And during that time, I kept in t- touch with Bobby and I moved. And I was like, hey, can I, I'd love to come back and get behind your bar, go through it and be part of the bar team and what you have and part of your team at Frosca. And, and it worked out. I moved back in 2005 and started working for Bobby. And so what Bobby and Lachlan McKinnon Patterson opened is Frosca Food and Wine. And it's a um, regional Italian cuisine based in Friuli, so Northeast Italy. So amazing little place. And, and it's if it's definitely hugely impactful, like you said, nationally, going through it, obviously hugely impactful on my career and my life. And where I am today. And so it's a, it's a beautiful place. Bobby and, and Lachlan came from the French laundry. So they, you know, had the, the precision and the, the background that they had in their life and what they were bringing to the table in, in Boulder, Colorado, which was crazy to bring that to Boulder. And it was amazing. So it was um, very impactful and very impactful still today. So at that time, was it revolutionary for them to be doing what they were doing in Boulder? Did people immediately, uh, come to the concept with with an open mind or or were people thinking like uh we don't know what's going on there it's was it too fancy for boulder was it too intense or were people immediately gravitating towards what they were doing there i think they you know i think maybe it was a little bit of a challenge for them but it was it seemed i mean the the, they were well received into the community and i think bold they hit it at the right time where boulder was ready for an experience like that you know when it's you know, it was a little bit of a risk, I think, for them because in Boulder's about 30 minutes away from Denver, and so in your, you know, you only have 100,000 people that live there. So for them to come in and and build this beautiful restaurant and with the, the amazing service and the wine service and the amazing creativity with the food from Northeast Italy, it's it was a very, you know, I think it was a little bit of a risk, but they they've been. Yeah, the community really embraced them and, and took on, and they've evolved obviously in different ways, and it's it's running amazingly strong today. They basically opened up a Denver restaurant in Boulder and just hoped that they could maybe draw from the extended metropolitan area, which is a, a risky thing to do. But now they're they've been around and they're they're kind of you know they are the benchmark basically. So when you went there and you joined them. Uh, on your on your first day, did you join them as a bartender, or were you? What was your exact role when you came back? No, they start everybody off at at the at the bottom. So it was every one of my jobs always started off at the bottom and ended up with the keys of the castle every time I left. So it was really exciting. But yeah, that they start off as a expo back weight at Frosca, and Bobby got me behind the bar pretty quick to start bar back. I started bar back in like three or four days in. So which I uh, did polish a lot of Riedel stemware. And, and I was, you know, being from Tennessee, not always like the, the most gracious, gracious with that. So it, it, I learned to crack be very a delicate. Glass, cracked a couple glasses very, those first couple of days. Very fast, yeah. So it was, it was, but yeah, so my business partner today actually was running, Steve Redzikowski was running the line at Frosca and I was the expo and going back and forth. So yeah, he started right there at the, the beginning and, 
and being an expo back weight and learned a lot and cut a lot of bread, cleaned a lot, climbed a lot of tables. Yeah, so ran the whole gamut before ended up taking over the bar program. Little did they know that they actually were kind of pairing you up with your future partner down down the line it ended up being like sort of they made they match made you guys looking across the past from each other and then many years later you ended up going out and doing your own thing exactly yeah so it was it was pretty serendipitous and yeah pretty wild five years later steve and i had the opportunity to open up oak at 14th we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about oak at 14th and the other uh restaurants in colorado stick with us here on the line we'll be right back This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. Welcome back to The Line. My guest today is Brian Dayton. He's the co-owner of three restaurants in Colorado, and he's a master sommelier. And we're talking about when he decided to partner up with uh, Steve Redzikowski to open up Oak at 14th. Uh, Tell us about what was the decision when you decided to go out on your own? Uh, How did you kind of formulate the plan? Uh, was it you and Steve together? Was it you and then he kind of came on? Just take us through kind of the steps of formulating the game plan to do your own restaurant project. Yeah, it was it was definitely a little chunky and not as streamlined as, as you would think opening your first restaurant. But I think in most businesses, small businesses, it's a lot like that. So, you know, bootstrapped up. There's a space that came available in downtown Boulder and, and it was had been a restaurant space for almost 30 years off and on. And we looked at it and it was really like something that felt like it could be a great, a great little little corner restaurant. It um, it needed a little TLC. The the family that was running it was ready to get out of the business. We had talked to them. I'd known them from previous um, bartending when I was working at Juanita's um, ten years before that, and so I talked to them. And long story short, ended up being able to take over the space right when um, I was looking for a chef partner in the in the project and. I talked to a couple of different chefs, and actually um, Bobby, who, who I worked for free, previously at Frosca, suggested that I talk to Steve. So I called Steve up. He was living in Aspen, working at the Little Nell. And I called Steve. I was like, hey, I got this deal. Would you like to come in and take a look at it? And had a wood-fired grill, had a wood-fired oven. And Steve was really excited about um, having the opportunity to cook like that and to really have that 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 down in Boulder and, and stay part of Colorado. So he signed on and, and, um, kind of been off to the races ever since. And so it was, it was a really fun experience. It was a definitely, um, challenging experience to get everything coming through. And, you know, with, with any kind of, you know, bootstrap operation, you know, we, it was with Oak in particular, we had kind of a, a good run, had a little heartbreak and then, and, and, and rolled back into being a, a great restaurant. And what, what I mean by that is we opened up for four months, had a fire and we were shut down for nine months and then we got to reopen. So during that opportunity that we, you know, we literally put in the tile ourselves, Steve and Vinny, our original sous chef, you know, we were in there with the grinder, cleaning up the ovens and, and, you know, so much heart and soul went into that initial space. And then to literally kind of go up in a lot of water and water damage and smoke it, um, it was definitely heartbreaking. And then once we got, but it also gave us this, this, 
extra energy to really like come back out nine months later when we got the opportunity and the the, the inside of the restaurant was rebuilt and everything went through it. It was, it was definitely challenging. And being a young business owner too, it was extremely challenging to learn how to deal with such a traumatic situation right off the bat. But I always say it's like, hey, you're you're always going to go through some trauma in, in a business life, and it's kind of good to get it over with early, I guess. He, yours so, hit you in the first four months yeah. of the business. <laughs> so the restaurant caught on fire. Was it during? service or was it at night what was what yeah, it was happened, actually right basically. before it was right before service um on a wednesday morning it's funny we literally uh, just gotten like this nice little pop in in the denver post and just got off the phone with steve it's like oh that's really cool and i was gonna go out for a quick run and i come back from a run and they're like i get the my phone's blowing up it's like hey you need to get the oak right now there's been a fire it was up in the crawl space we we're on a we we're in the bottom floor of a two-story building and so the fire actually broke out in the crawl space up above right above the roof so most of the fire damage was up on the roof in there it was come where the flu came out and so long story short it was a problem with the flu up there and so went out and um so we we sustained just a ton of water damage and that's traditionally what happens in a fire situation you know the fire does a decent amount of damage but then the water damage is just huge and the smoke damage going through it so it took a while they pretty much gutted the building and then redid it, which was, again, an, um, somewhat fortuitous and down the road because we got a basically a brand new restaurant. It was really beautiful and going through what we had was um, was definitely traumatic, but it also it turned out to be for the better. And nobody got hurt. We got reopened, and that was always the biggest two blessings out of that. That's the greatest thing, that no one was injured. I mean, the Ansel system always does a great deal of damage, unfortunately, but it yeah. makes sure that you know everyone gets out safely. So you have this this moment when you decide to go out on your own, you're achieving a little bit of success. And then you've got this nine months of downtime. How do you keep your, did you, were you able to retain staff? How did you keep the energy high? And also how do you stay focused? It's almost an entire year of just, you now you're, you, you already went up the hill, you got there and now you have, you rolled all the way back down. So <laughs> how do you maintain the positive energy and the momentum to be like, we're going to get back there. It's probably easier for you and Steve, your partners, it's your baby, it's your dream. But like, did you have to partly rebuild the team? You know, how, how did you, uh, how did you keep a level head during that process? Yeah. I don't know if I was always level headed through that <laughs> process or even still today, most of the time And our business is pretty wild. The, we retained about 50% of the staff through that time. We did um, we had business interruption insurance. I highly suggest that for anybody that works for themselves. Please get that. It, um, we, um, so we retained the staff. We actually kept uh, 75% right off the bat. We would do weekly weekly meetings. So, you know, um, one time we were, like, canning cherries, like, doing all kinds of different stuff. Um, the bar manager at the time, Greg and myself, really worked hard on our soda program so we could really – kind of create the soda program to get better to where it was for the day before. So I think it, you know, it kind of put this extra oomph in us to really focus on the business and to come back out, like you said, back up the hill. So we come out with all guns blazing and moving forward. So, and so it definitely um, made us run faster and harder than we had before. I'm curious about the, the pre-opening kind of business decisions that you and Steve made. Did you put a deck together and reach out to investors? Are you guys the only two involved in your project? And just because, you know, let's go a little inside baseball here because a lot of our listeners are in the business. I'm curious, like, what was your difficulty level in actually trying to get people interested in your, in your project? And if there was difficulty, uh, what techniques did you use to really get them excited about the project before it opened. Yeah, we were really fortunate. I've, um, Jeff Bosman, who's a very dear friend of mine, has been one of our biggest supporters. I just met him at the bar at Frosco. I always say, you never know who you're going to meet and, and who's going to change your life. And and Jeff, you come in all the time, and he would sit down there you know, for five years when I was working there. He's like, why aren't you doing this for yourself? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to work on it, get it. And he really pushed me really hard to get the business model. Like you said, I could a deck put together, financials going through it. We really looked hard at the previous business and what they had done and what their business models were. We got in their records, and we were able to run our business model based off of previous years and what we thought the space would do and then what Boulder was evolving into at the time. And so... Um, you know, it was definitely the friends and family thing that were going out. And so we found 
three different friends that made the initial investment, Jeff and, and Terrell and Ben, they all came in and helped us with that. Steve and I basically drained every penny that we had and put into it. And, and to get the business model going, it was, it was, it was very, again, it was very bootstrap. Like I said, at the beginning we were, you know, putting our own tile in, you know, Steve and Vinny doing all the, the hard work with, with the hoods and everything in there. And so it was, um, it was very, very minimalistic to get going. And so, but yeah, we had a lot of, a lot of love and support from the, from the investors and they came on board and they've been there with us on the projects moving forward as well. You have sort of, you, you have a lot of roles that you sort of satisfy at, at your projects. You're, you know, the, one of the managing partners, if not the managing partner at your project. So you have all these day-to-day operations that you handle from the business side, but also you are, you know, a trained sommelier and a trained bartender. So I imagine you have a ton of say, not only about front of house, but also about beverages and, and staffing. Uh, I'm curious, what would you say today with the projects you have open, what is your, your main focus that you really try to, to nail down? And then after that, if you can kind of just take us through a little bit of like, what is a day to day for you? You know, do you visit all the restaurants? Do you split it up? Just kind of tell us a little bit about how you, how you manage your time. Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. You know, the day to day now to start with is, you know, trying to focus on the management and making sure the management's taken care of and making sure that we're all making cohesive decisions to better the teams at all time. That's our, you know, and I think in any business, the, the hardest part and the biggest challenge of, of what you do is that team dynamic. And so we've really pushed hard on, on the management lately to make sure we're going through that. Obviously we're paying attention to the numbers and, and paying attention to the guest experience, but it's really about making sure the management's taken care of and then the management's taking care of your teams that are running the show. We have over 200 employees now, so it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty broad operation. Day to day, it's, it's, I don't have a set schedule. Sometimes it's, it's actually become more challenging for me personally because having more restaurants and then opening a fourth restaurant, you're kind of spread a little bit more thin than what you would like it. You know, and Steve's always like, what if we just had one restaurant and we could just focus on this? And I'm, and sometimes I'm always like, yeah, you're really right. We should just have one restaurant and focus on that. And then other times, you know, I get excited and we have four restaurants and here you go. So, um, some days I do visit all three restaurants. I try to spend two nights at acorn and two nights at Oak during my, my five day work week to get, to be on the floor, I generally try to get there early in the afternoon, like twelve thirty-one, somewhere in there. I'll go by Brider for a lunch during the week, and so again, it just kind of depends on where I'm needed, what manager's out of town, where the if something's kind of gone awry, where it needs a little more focus, give a little TLC at Oak, a little TLC at Acorn, back and forth. So it kind of depends on which restaurant needs the more attention at the time because it's always evolving, always changing. And so it's a, it's a, it's a very, as you know, it's a very challenging business. When I talk to people that have one restaurant, they often say there's not enough time in the day for me to figure out how to do everything, get everything done here. And I always feel behind. And when I talk to some people that have more than one restaurant, they say that a lot of it just comes down to sort of delegation and having good people on the team. But above and beyond that, does it, does it sometimes feel like you're, literally spinning three plates and you're you're a little concerned that that they're always going to fall or do you kind of feel like after the amount of years that you have in does it feel like it's sort of a smooth running machine at this point i always say be aware of the cliff so you should definitely like you're saying being aware of those spinning plates if you're not paying attention you're going to fall off for sure and so it's something that is very keeps me pretty nervy for sure but it's also you have to have faith in your management team. Like you said, surround yourself with great people. And we have a lot of great people that run our restaurants and, and that having that faith in them that they're making the right decisions. And, and there are ways to make sure that not micromanaging, but making sure everybody's doing what you want them to do and pushing forward. And then you hear it, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, hear from the guest, you see the reviews and that's one of those things pushing through, but it's, it's definitely challenging and it's definitely scary and it's definitely sometimes it feels like it's out of control and you're like oh my gosh and there's only like you said there's only so much you can do in a day and so i do a lot of praying too you know so <laughs> oh my god yes please just hold on um so it is um it is a real challenge and it's definitely becoming more of a challenge as we open up the fourth restaurant which will be another serious full and full service restaurant yeah i'm 
I want to ask about that fourth restaurant because, you know, there's there's a decision when you're doing well at the first restaurant. Maybe you spy a nice spot that you had your eye on for a while and you think, all right, number two. All right, the numbers make sense. Find the investors, boom, you open. But then three, four, now you're talking about you're a full-fledged restaurant group. You got 200 employees. You're, you're looking at doing a fourth project. Uh, pretty soon you've only got you know, one work, one work week a day to spend at each one of your projects, basically. So it was there, was there a lot of apprehension prior to number four or were you thinking, were you full steam ahead? Cause it's, it's, um, it's going to be a big project, right? So talk a little bit about going from three to four and the new project and what it's going to be like, please. Yeah. I think it, it's, it's both those things that you said, like challenging and then also, it's also calculated at the same time and exciting to do um, to do a fourth project, but it's also it's it's very scary to jump into this. And this is we kind of we actually looked at the space three different times and turned it down three different times because mm. of being like, oh, do we really want to do that? Do the numbers make sense? Do we want the headache of it? And because it is going to be extremely challenging. And then, like you said, just being spread so thin, you can only do so much. Oak's been open, you know, post fire six years this month acorn just turned four so i mean not that we're off to the races and things are easily moving forward but they're definitely we've got our good systems in place we've got great teams we've got great people that are pushing forward on those projects and so and we're actually bringing some of those people into the fold for Corita, which is going to be outside of our wheelhouse and totally different than what we do now we Oak, Acorn, and Brider all do North American cuisine based around wood fire cookery, wood fire grill, with a big emphasis on the cocktail program. With Carita, we're doing a Spanish steak restaurant inspired by the Basque country and then the beautiful steakhouses of, of Spain. And so it's very different to take that and go culturally totally different from what we're used to to a total different culture, which is the Spanish culture, and, and really bring that into the fold and do it correctly, give it the nobility that it deserves, and then the, the thought process. So in certain ways, it's been extremely exciting because it's something totally new and totally different and pushed me personally to really my beverage knowledge from being a bartender and being a sommelier to being outside the box and thinking about what we do with classic cocktails to thinking about the sherry program, thinking about the gin and tonic program, thinking about the all the different vermouths that come out of Spain and then obviously the the wines that are coming out of there are absolutely amazing too so and then to put that together with the beef program and the food is it's a lot to put on the plate literally and so it's um it's been it's been challenging it's been fun it's been exciting all those things and it's and it's definitely scary I'll say all that there's one of the wonderful things about opening multiple projects is it gives uh, people on on all sides of the operation opportunity to grow. They've been at one spot for one or two years. You got a great GM there. Well, that can't really make a you know a floor captain or whatever a second GM. So a second a second space, a third space, a fourth gives people opportunity to grow within your operation. As uh, someone who has a, a huge wealth of beverage knowledge, I'm curious how do you grow people on the beverage side, your, your bartenders, uh, your sommeliers, if there are other ones at your other projects, how do you help them kind of grow and put their own imprint on cocktail programs while you still maintain, you know, creative control or at least a lot of creative, creative input? How collaborative is it in building wine lists and cocktail lists? And how much do you still uh, work on directly? Yeah, so the wine list out of all the projects have been pretty much for the beginning myself and then one other person who depends on like Paul Stroud or Jenica Flippo who's taking over our will become our wine director like you're saying like growing with this she's she's going on five years with this and started off as a server and then now is our general manager at Oak and now will become a wine director of all of our projects and so those growth and go and the growth that she's had and the growth that all the restaurants have give, like you said, gives off more opportunities for everybody involved. As far as like the creativity goes with the bar, we, um, all the bartenders, I always, cause I was a bartender for off and on almost 15 years. 
And I want my bartenders to really think for themselves. I want them to push themselves. I really want them to be making their own cocktails. And so I give them kind of a guideline, and it's basically terroir-based. So if you're starting off with a tequila or a mezcal, think about, like, everything that's grown in Mexico and where you kind of start your cocktails and where you go and what to bring into that cocktail. So I really push them that way and give them a little bit of the direction. And then I want them to make their own drinks. I wanted the bar to them. I want them to have that same excitement it was for me to really be creative and go through it. So instead of being about my drinks and my things, I want them to do it, doing what they want to do and being creative and really pushing the envelope. And so they'll they'll create different drinks, and then I'll taste the drinks, and it'll be like, okay, well, what do we need? Some more acid here. We need something that makes it pop a little bit more. This drink's a little dull, so why don't we add a little bit of this? We are using this. Let's. Why don't we think outside the box? Of this. Hey, what? What do you think of this garnish? Well, maybe we should grind up the garnish to a powder. So that we're always like suggestive with it. I still want them to to be their drink. I always approve the last the the cocktail before it goes on the list. Which you know, it's hard. I have to taste a lot of cocktails. It's a really tough job. And um, unbelievable. <laughs> but it's uh, but it but it, you know, I want them to be you know because I want the cocktails to stand and really stand out in the program. And it also helps them think outside the box on it as well. You know, I'm also a very big proponent of self-starting so i i push the teams a little bit to definitely self-start and think for themselves on it and then and then add my feed back to it when it's comes down to final execution in terms of uh being a sommelier and and having a, a lot of customers most likely come in and are either uneducated about wine they're a little scared to order something specifically or maybe they just are like laser focused on one thing they're like i drink pinot noir that's it bring me a pinot noir right so as as someone who has a wealth of wine knowledge but you really only have what two three minutes at the table to kind of after that you're getting into sort of the realm of too much explanation right right? so how do you what's your style for connecting with people at the table and just quickly educating and also you're really you're selling them a product that that they want but how do you go about how do you go about doing that i've always found that to be like a really interesting dance at the table you know one thing that i learned from bobby early on was you know it's it was find out what the guest likes like you said hey i'm coming in i like to drink pinot noir awesome i've got some great pinot noirs i also have a lot of different wines on the list too that I can walk you through that would be very similar to what you're enjoying. And if you wanted to walk outside the box with that, walk them into a direction that you feel like their palate would be happy with. And so I think it's something that, you know, you have to read your guests at all times and find out where they want to go. And then the next challenge of that is to making sure that you don't push the envelope too far till you get them into something that they're not going to enjoy. And I've made that mistake before, you know, getting too aggressive being like, Hey, getting really excited about an esoteric varietal. And then they're like, yeah, no, I wanted the Pinot Noir. Can you bring that back please? And so, and so, you know, you have to be very delicate in how you handle those situations and move forward. That's one thing that's you know, going to be really challenging with the new restaurant with Corita with the Spanish wine list. And so we're excited about that and how you really placate that to the guest and different roles of what the wines are. From from going to drinking wines and drinking cocktails all day and the extreme difficulty <laughs> of really what that entails of giving feedback on cocktails all the time, you have uh, what a lot of people would consider in a pretty extreme uh, love, passion, hobby. You run, and you run really, really far. I'm curious how you got into ultramarathoning, and am I you know grasping here when I say that the job is very intense and your hobby is very intense and maybe that somehow balances each other out. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got into that and, and also what, what does it mean to you personally to be out on the road or on the, on the hill, just going after it for hours and hours on end? Yeah. It's, I started running in middle school ran the mile in middle school and then ran cross country in high school, ran to a lot of bars and in college. And, um, and once I got out of, college and started when i started bartending juanita's talking about that earlier i started running again actually tim luca who i mentioned him and i started running a lot of trails and i did my first long race in 1996 was an 18 mile race and then i did my first marathon in 1998 and so it'll be 20 years ago this um this summer and so i started getting into running it was more 
not really like thought too much about it. And then it just, it was something that really is almost meditation for myself. I have a lot of energy, so it helps me get a lot of that out. And I really like being outside. And so that was the other thing with bartending. I could work at night. I could work out during the day. I could still have a healthy lifestyle. And it, you know, and it kept me out of a lot of trouble, I think too, with, with bartending, you can obviously make, you know, some good and bad decisions late at night. And so I think with the running helped me choose less bad decisions at times. Lord knows I've made plenty of those, but anyway, it's, um, it's definitely a passion that went through it. And then early two thousands, I really started to focus on my running. I got, uh, I ended up running, entering some races, ended up winning a couple of races kind of as a dark horse. And then it took off from there. I ended up being sponsored for almost 10 years i ended up um winning two national championships 50k trail national champ championships in 2006 2007 and it was pretty intense and like you said it, this balance i don't know that i had balance because it was you know you'd run you'd work you'd run you'd work and and when i was working at frosca back then it was it was a pretty intense job pretty intense um uh, running lifestyle that i had and so now seven years i've I hung up my hat of of competitive running seven years ago when we opened up oak it was too much to balance that all out i still run almost daily at least six days a week um this past year i um ended up running leadville marathon so high altitude trail and it's something that to me it's very it's very it's something i'm really passionate about when I'm thinking out there it really calms me and i get a lot of great ideas from the restaurant really also think about different ways to tackle different issues. And then honestly, you can kind of zone out and meditate and, and get a lot of your physical energy out. Can't answer your phone on a 50 K run either. It gives you a little, probably a little private time, right? Yeah, I definitely always, I, I am a big proponent of leaving the phone at home on my runs. And if you can't get in touch with me, that's I'm on a run You're running. What's <laughs> a, what is that conversion? What is 50 K 31 miles, 31 miles. And what do those splits look like? Like how fast are you running each mile there? It, it's varied because you're going over terrain, terrain. up and down. Okay, yeah. So for national championship, which is out in the out in Marin, just north of San Francisco, um, in the in the headlands there, you're looking at ten thousand elevation gain and drop almost. And when I won the race, just right over four hours. So you're moving pretty fast, but you're climbing a lot of hills, cl- dropping a lot of hills pretty fast. And so now that you've kind of you've kind of hung up your hat a little bit uh when you're still running every single day are we talking about are you running two miles every day are you running eight miles every day <laughs> no so average about five miles a day my some days i get in three and then recently i've gotten in more two days a week i'm about 11 to 11 milers a week have you ever seen that movie the the barkley marathon about the the ultra marathoners I've, I've never watched the movie or the the documentary on it. I'm very familiar with Barkley and yeah. being in Tennessee and yeah, yeah. those those guys are madmen for sure. Well, I think most people would consider you also a madman. <laughs> well, fifty k is really nothing to to sneeze at. Uh, as uh, as you look forward to February for your next year for your fourth restaurant to open, is there a part of you that says? wow, we could do 10, we could do 20, or are you one at a time type of guy? Yeah, one at a time. You know, always looking forward, always, you know, life short, thinking about what the next the next challenge might be. Right now it's full focus on Corita getting that open and, and as we get the doors open and maybe six, seven months down the road and start thinking about something else. But 10 or 20, I think would be a little bit too much. I've always told Steve, I was like, I always want to have five, kind of what you said earlier, one a day, check in on. So we'll see if that comes to reality or not. Any part of you at all ever side sideways looking towards Tennessee and thinking about ever doing a, a hometown kid makes good type of project somewhere in Tennessee? My mother would really like me to do that. She she really wants me to come home and do a restaurant. She mentions that almost every time we talk. <laughs> I, I you know I live out west. I've been out west off and on you know for a long time now, and it's definitely home. And you know the humidity down south, something I don't really want to go back with. And so, but it's um there's amazing restaurants happening in Nashville. Nashville's blowing up. So, but I think I'll stay out west for the most part. Stick to your sort of Colorado hills and mountains and trails. Exactly. Uh, since you're so firmly rooted in the the Colorado food scene, uh, you obviously were a part of one of the pioneering restaurants, and now you've got several of your own. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on sort of Denver's 
and Boulder's position in the like national food discussion. Um, do you feel like you are part of it? Do you feel overlooked? Are you bothered by the focus on only kind of coastal, unfortunately? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, I find it fascinating. I feel Colorado has been a little bit of a flyover state for a few years for sure. I think we're making headway in that conversation becoming on a, on a national platform. I think that there are a lot of great restaurateurs that are pushing really hard to, to continue and, and elevate what's going on in Colorado. I think Colorado is also an amazing blend of East and West coast. Cause you get those influences coming from, from both of those. And then we're right in the middle of America. So you have like all this great bounty that comes from there, like Colorado lamb, Colorado cattle, uh, and, and the things that we're really proud of to, to put on the table for our, for our guests. I think, I think you're having more and more people move to Colorado from other markets that are really hungry and that, that have done some amazing things in the culinary world. So I think it's starting to really get a nice beat, a nice pulse. And, you know, you said death and co is opening up a bar there in Denver in the next, in the next few months, which we're really excited from. It's right around the corner from acorn. It's great to have those guys as neighbors. And, and so, I mean, you're starting to see these guys that are really like, Hey, Denver's hot. It's like, there's a really good pulse. People are really, you know, for the most part, you know, the, staffing everybody's a little more laid back in Colorado you know and and sometimes almost too laid back but it's um it's I think you know we're gonna get it would I personally because I'm pushing hard on the Colorado scene like to see more focus on Denver of course you know at the same time I know that we're all working hard to do what we do and, and we're really proud of of the hard work that we've put into the restaurant scene there and and we'll continue to push every day to to make sure it's better Everyone out there listening, if you're ever in the Denver or Boulder area, you can find Brian running around in between his restaurants. Uh, Oak and at 14th is in Boulder, and Acorn and Brider are in Denver, and the new restaurant will be opening in February of 2018. So uh, go and check them out if you're ever in those Colorado neighborhoods. Brian, thanks so much for joining us here on the line. We, it was great talking with you. Eli, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And everybody out there, thanks for listening. Join us every single week, Tuesdays, 11 a.m., for a new episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.